Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. And for those of you like me who feel like the world is only getting worse at a, at a rapid pace, uh, I, had a, I was having a conversation, of, I guess, four or five weeks ago on this show with George Gilder, the famous thinker and, and futurist. And he's written a terrific new book and talking about the, the good things that are going to happen in the future. And I said, well, George, who else could I talk to that might make me feel a little less gloomy? I guess what I'm learning is that there is somebody we can talk to who might uh, might guide us in a more positive direction, shine a light on things that are better. And I've been really fortunate to get um, Martin Marion Tupi on the show, who's uh, the founder of the humanprogress.org, Cato Institute, been there over two decades. He's uh, written a book called the Simon, he's got to cover something called the Simon Abundance Index. And also, superabundance, a story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion, great to great to have you with uh, with with me today, and uh, so we can all learn about uh, things really aren't as bad as they, as we read about in the paper. And I think you've written about it. That's that's one of the problems we have is that journalism tends to cover only the negative. Um, well, thanks for having me. Yes, um, as Steven Pinker from Harvard points out, journalism is about things that happen, not things that don't happen. Um, and uh, um, you know, when when uh, when a bunch of crazy fanatics fly an airplane into uh, a building in New York, now that is something that. Uh, uh, that that obviously is very important, very traumatic. Uh, if you know, it will end up on all the front pages. Um, what is never covered is uh, human progress that's happening in the background every year by a quarter of a percent or half a percent. Uh, absolute poverty is declining, growth is increasing, etc. But there is never any point in time, any any hour in a day or a day in a week when uh, poverty simply decreases by 50%. All of these things are incremental and by that nature, they are hidden. Um, so, so um, you know, th that is why you never have a journalist standing in the middle of a city that is at peace um, saying, I'm here in a city where nothing is happening, right? So so that's that, that's part of the issue. The, the, the other part of the issue is that um, obviously we have evolved to look out for dangerous and bad things. Um, and so uh, our mind is always on the lookout for those bad things because we have evolved in a time when the world was much less hospitable to human beings than than currently is. You had a great example in one of the pieces you wrote. I loved it. If you're a, if you're 15, 20,000 years ago, you're out on the savannah with your with your fellow tribesmen and you hear a rustling sound and you can conclude it's either the wind in the trees or it's a uh, saber-toothed tiger cutting, coming through the grass. Your instincts probably are you ought to assume it's a saber-toothed tiger, because if you if you if you say it was just the wind, uh, you could end up as dinner. Yeah, yeah. If you if you overreact to a threat which is non-existent by running away from the rustling bush, um, nothing happens to you. You just expend a little bit of energy. But if you underreact to a threat that is real, 
such as a lion or tar uh, or saber-toothed tiger uh, hiding behind a bush, then you become dinner. You have no uh, descendants. And so this is a perfect example of a way in which an optimistic attitude or an optimistic predisposition to life will be weeded out of the gene pool, right? Um, but there are other things at play. So, 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 so the optimists among us have all been, have all been devoured by the, uh, <laughs> by the tigers. But, but, that is correct when you think about the vast expanse of 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 human evolution on top of that of course you've got the uh, you've got competition not just competition between different newspapers you have competition between newspapers and television between television and and internet and so by publishing ever more um shocking stories that that's the way that you can get access to 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 the eyeballs to the clicks and in fact there was a study that came out about 2 months ago that showed that for every additional negative word in the title of uh, of an online article, the click-through rate increases by two and a half percent, which is huge, right? So obviously, all the uh, all the headlines are going to be negative, and very few people actually read through the article, even if it is written properly. They will just look at the headline and say, "Okay, the world is coming to an end." So, so the bottom line is that for all of these different reasons, people have an impression of the world that is much more negative than it really is. Well, I find that when we write titles for the episodes for the shows we do, I mean, if, if you if you put something really alarming and, and dire, uh, people click on it. If you say, you know, the sun came out today and it's a wonderful day and a wonderful day in the neighborhood, uh, nobody cares. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> They've done psychological tests on people in a lab where people were asked, uh, where people who came in saying, we want to we are interested only in positive news but when you have a split screen in front of a uh, of a person with negative and positive stories the eyeballs immediately gravitate toward the negative again for evolutionary reasons for psychological reasons and so forth well let's cover some of the good things that are happening i mean we if you look and i've done a little look i peeked ahead at your website and read some of the other books on on this, and I guess you know one of the big things is that extreme poverty has fallen below ten percent in the world, down from sixty seventy percent, uh, you know, just seventy five uh, seventy five years ago, and uh, the child mortality rates down. Um, the, in, in fact, with the rise of Africa and uh, Middle East, uh, income equality worldwide is down, and we've also basically eliminated a lot of the diseases that killed people malaria polio and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, forms of heart disease i mean these are just some of the trends what's what's the rest of the picture look like uh... well i always like to start with uh, life expectancy i mean until a couple of hundred years ago life expectancy around the world for thousands of years was about 25 to 30 years uh, now it is 78 in the United States, it's 73 years globally, it's 85 in Hong Kong. So we we live two or three lifetimes uh, <laughs> longer than uh, than our ancestors would have. Uh, that's to start with. The, the other thing that's important is, I think, calorie consumption. People, uh, we, we, we really don't understand just how widespread and how omnipresent hunger was at all, point in, uh, all points in human life. Now, of course, our problem in the West is obesity, um, which we need to tackle through things like Ozempic and uh, and other drugs, because people are simply having so many so much access to cheap calories that they simply become obese. Um, um, child mortality. I mean, that's something that should interest uh, all of your listeners. Um, you know, in 1750s, mm -hmm. 
just before the American Revolution uh, in Sweden, for which we have data, right? We don't have data for all the countries, but for some we have data. And Sweden has very good data. So in Sweden in the 1750s, 40% um, of all children before the age of zero and 15 died, uh, died before their 15th birthday. Uh, that was not an outlier. 50% of children before the age of 15 died in Bavaria. 50% died in hunter-gathering societies. Today, the global average is 4%, and in the Nordic countries is 0.3%. So that gives you a sense of just uh, maternal mortality is down. Um, so, um, so yeah, uh, and, and and don't forget, don't forget, uh, don't forget income. That's very important. Um, for thousands of years, the um, average income around the world was about two dollars per person per day in equivalent productivity. Um, today, globally, it's thirty-five dollars. So the average inhabitant of the world, adjusted for inflation, is eighteen percent better. Off, sorry, eighteen times better off than he or she was two hundred years ago. Well, one of the things that I think we need to focus a little bit are the conditions that caused all that, because the the world grew at 0.2% or 3% world economy grew for, you know, what about a thousand years before, when was it roughly 1750 or 1800 when the economy really took off? And now we're looking at a growth rate, or at least until recently, that was close to 3%. So that's a dramatic increase. Uh, yet they're, they're, their political and social and cultural conditions would cause that change. Can you, you know, can you get at some of the root causes? Because it bears on today's debate about what kind of society we want to have, how centralized, how much regulation, um, you know, threats to the rule of law. And I think there are conditions which cause this this enormous progress. Could you you amplify on what those are? Yeah, sure. The Bank of England uh, did great research on this. Prior to 1750, global economy grew by 0.01% per year, which means that it took 6,000 years for GDP per capita to double. Yeah. So let's say you're making $2 per person per day at a growth rate of 0.01%. Um, it takes 6,000 years before you go from $2 to $4. But after 1750, the average growth rate for the world was 1.5%. 1, 1 at that uh, level of growth, at that rate of growth, uh, GDP doubles every 50 years. So we live in an unprecedented moment in human history where uh, where even, even a 2% growth rate, uh, which by American standards we consider pretty low, is really unprecedentedly high in terms of what our ancestors were used to. Now, where does it come from? Or where does it come from? Well, it, it, in my view, it comes from the spread of human liberty in the 18th century. Um, 18th century is really very important. New ideas start penetrating the human brain and the human society, including things like equality before the law, equal dignity for all people. Now, we all know the caveats. We all know that women had to wait longer. Minorities had to wait longer in order to have equal dignity. But before um, the 18th century, very few people um, were treated in a dignified fashion uh, before the law and by authorities. And they used to be the nobility. Um, and and basically in eighteen uh, in seventeen hundreds, what tends to happen is that you have the increase of the of the middle class called the bourgeoisie, and um, they start demanding rights for themselves. And um, as a consequence of that, they, they get the ball rolling. First, it's the propertyed white men. Then you have women, you have minorities, etc. Ever expanding growth of equal treatment under the law and equal dignity for every individual. Uh, the power of government decreases. 
so that you no longer have to petition the king in order to be permitted to import or export from your country. You can now do it yourself as an American or as a Briton or as a Frenchman. Um, so both economic and political freedom increases. And uh, as a result of that, uh, all of these energies that people have to better their lives and consequently their entire community get unleashed. Um, again, if you were not born to the right social order until about 200 years ago, um, you couldn't really um, you couldn't really have a go, right? But but certainly today, anybody in Western society in in the United States can have a go if they have a good idea. Uh, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm talking with uh, Marianne Tupi of Cato Institute and HumanProgress.org uh, website. I highly recommend. And we're talking about the the growth that we've seen in the last 250 years, uh, dependent on some very specific changes in in culture and and our economic arrangements and power arrangements. And um, it, it turns out that more freedom and property rights and rule of law, those sort of basic things are were the essential ingredients. And people talk about technical revolutions, and certainly we had advances in science, um, gave us the steam engine, ultimately electricity, and, and, uh, and, 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 and now the now demonized internal combustion engine. Um, but they're all real technologies that fuel growth, but the technologies didn't come first the cultural changes came first. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I would. Let, let me make a couple of points. Uh, people always <clears throat> had property rights in a sense that uh, people always knew what their house was and you know what their grain was and what their land was. It's just that property was not equally defended under the law. They didn't have equal equality of private property, right? That That's the key, is that uh, people always had private property, but th those those property arrangements frequently got violated uh, by the rulers, and it is really only more recently that private property gets uh, gets uh, defended and protected uh, on a more egalitarian basis. Whether you are Bill Gates or whether you are Marianne Tupi or Bill Walton, uh, we all can call the police and have our private property defended, okay, and and uh, have access to the to to the judiciary. Um, so that's one point. Uh, the other point was that. Uh, the thing is that until very recently, uh, people, um, well, let's see, if you <clears throat> invented something, uh, you usually needed to get a permission from the high authorities in order to put your innovation in practice. Not People were deeply suspicious of innovation, but if you wanted to innovate something, you probably needed an, uh, the king or, or the duke uh, to basically say yes to that innovation. How do we know that? Well, in Roman literature, for example, we have examples of uh, Roman investors who bring innovations to the emperor. And the emperor has them executed because he doesn't want the innovation. Uh, for example, there, there's an innovation of apparently an unbreakable glass 2,000 years ago. And the emperor asks the innovator, did you tell anyone? And the innovator stupidly says, no, I didn't. And so the emperor has him executed because he doesn't want uh, unbreakable glass to be replacing uh, all the uh, jars and uh, made from precious, precious metal and things like that. So, so people were generally very suspicious of innovation, and uh, even if they were not, uh, you still needed uh, the government to permit you to put those innovations into practice. Well, you talk, you talk of one of your writings, uh, very something I never really quite focused on. It was, it's interesting. You talk about 
up until the time we're talking about, the societies uh, were organized around what you call extractive institutions. And then uh, later on, the, the, the arrangements we're talking about that are positive are called inclusive economic institutions what's what's the what's extractive and what's inclusive well the, the extractive and inclusive that's uh, that's north korea versus south korea right the yeah. extractive institutions in north korea uh, north korea has extractive institutions because the people are treated as a possession of the state to be squeezed for every ounce of labor and uh, every ounce of productivity um and they're not treated properly whereas whereas in south korea which is a democracy which is a free country um uh, uh, people have many more rights they can do with their property whatever they like pretty much um and the government is answerable to them whereas in north korea people are answerable to the government right in uh, south korea it's the other way around so inclusive institution is one uh like south korea that allows you to um to 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 elect your leaders leaders are responsible for the delivery of public services policing protection of private property rights extractive is basically you use your population as serfs as slaves um and you don't care about their well-being and you're not answerable to them well most of the world was in the uh, was in the was in the extraction extractive business uh across all cultures and across all time and that first changed in uh in europe but then uh, the change towards more inclusive institutions has now spread to the rest of the world. And could you, what's been happening in Africa and South South America, and Middle East? I mean, is, is are some of those ideas well, taking I, root, and is that what's causing growth there? Well, um, so you're correct. Um, it really starts in Western Europe. It starts in the Netherlands. It starts in the UK, where the government is. Uh, uh, much less powerful. It uh, begins to be answerable to the uh, desires of the ordinary people. And then, of course, it spreads to the United States. And the United States has the highest number of citizens, uh, freeborn citizens who can vote uh, anywhere in the world for like 60 years. Um, so th does it spread to, to, to the other parts of the world? Well, certainly, um, you know, th 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 there, are num there are many more democracies uh, than there were, let's say, uh, in, in 1800 or even 1930s. Uh, democracy spreads, especially up to 1989. Um, you know, I'm not a regional specialist, so I cannot tell you about each specific reason. Uh, but, but, uh, but, but it's not just the spread of freedom uh, which is important. Uh, but for countries, but even in countries which are not free, these countries can benefit uh, from the great discoveries that are made in, in rich countries and free countries. So, so let me rephrase that. It is free countries which provide the lion's share of all the innovations that happen around the world. And then even countries which are not free can benefit from those innovations by simply adopting them, either through international trade or by importing those technologies. So, so uh, freedom is very important when it comes to the generation of innovation, but nations can still become richer, even if they are not free, by simply adopting innovations which were produced somewhere else. Does that make sense? It does. But the thing that I think is interesting is that democracy is not necessarily the the thing you need to have the economy advance the rule of law the 
the protection of, uh, of of property rights, you know, good judicial systems. Th those are, I think, are the 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 soil for which economic growth happens and innovation happens. Think about Singapore. Singapore. Yeah, there's something on you. Was it was not it was not much of a democracy in the sense no. that you got to vote him out, but he created he created institutions that made Singapore take off like a like a rocket. Yes, Singapore is definitely a, an incredibly rich country, richer than the United States, but it is not on the cusp of innovation, right? Innovation is produced in free lands like the United States, for example, or the United Kingdom or Germany or Israel. Uh, Singapore is not usually associated with tremendous uh, steps in innovation, but, but there is something to what you were saying. Milton Friedman liked to say that you cannot have a free polity, you cannot have a free society without free economics, but you can have free economics without political freedom. And the perfect example of that would be a country like Chile between 1973 and 1990. Uh, they did have a free economy, but they had a uh, military dictatorship. Uh, in a similar fashion, uh, in uh, in Singapore, it is not what I would call a hardcore democracy. I mean, there are, you know, it is managed democracy at best, um, but they have a very high level of economic growth. The problem with dictatorships is that um, if you were to bet on which government is going to produce better results, then it's still better to stick with a democracy because for every good dictator, quote unquote, good dictator, uh, there's going to be 10 bad dictators, right? So it's always better to, to, to have a democracy, but yes, economic growth is possible without a democracy as China and Chile and many other countries remind us of. The, uh, I do want to get to the, a lot of the other trends and I want to circle back to whether we think the inclusive uh, regimes are under threat today. Uh, what you, you've got a website uh, that's very interesting. Ten global trends. Could you sum, summarize what uh, what that's about? Well, that is really a derivative product of my first book uh, that I co-wrote with Ron Bailey from Reason Magazine called Ten Global Trends. Every smart person should know, and many others you'll find interesting. Um, that sold very well because it's a non-ideological, non-technical, non-theoretical. Uh, book that just filled with charts about different trends that are improving in the world. I think we have something like 78 uh, showing. So, about... it's, a, it's something that ordinary people will understand exactly what you're doing. You don't need a technical background to uh, get it. Correct. You just look at a chart and if the line is increasing, things are getting better or, you know, uh, so, so yes. Some examples. Well, uh, there are 78 of them. Uh, one of them could be, for example, increase in literacy, uh, right? Now, 200 years ago, 90% of humanity was illiterate. Today, 10% of humanity is illiterate. Um, uh, urbanization. Uh, many more people live in cities than, uh, than, uh, than they used to. Something like 50% of humanity already lives in the cities, maybe even 60. And uh, why would that be a good thing? Is because when you have uh, when you have a lot of people living in the cities, they produce more innovation. That's part number one. Part number two: when people move into the cities, they leave more land for nature, so nature can rebound. And in fact, in the book, there are a number of uh, uh, positive environmental trends, which I think is very important because these days, uh, young people especially are freaked out about the environment. They think everything is uh, bad. That is not true. Uh, the United States and the European Union have 
added 35% more new forests in the last 20 years. We, we have 35% more forests than we used to. Uh, China, 15% more forests. So afforestation is one big thing. Another thing that's very important is, for example, fisheries. Uh, we have we are producing fish uh, specifically for the purpose of getting eaten. Like 50% of all the fish that ends up on a plate anywhere in the world, it has been grown to be eaten. We don't have to catch them in the wild and therefore undermine uh, the, the, the population of the fish in the ocean. Um, other things, uh, decline in uh, air pollution. Um, you will remember in the 1970s how smoggy American cities used to be. Now the air is much cleaner in most Western cities. Um, rivers, which were once declared dead, people can now swim in, like the uh, like the River Seine in Paris. People now swim in it. In uh, London, Thames was a dead river. Now it's a home to dolphins and whales. Uh, why? Because the environment has improved so much. So one of the I thought the one of the most interesting trend, I think it was number 21 on your list, uh, that IQ scores are rising massively. Yes. Well, that's a global trend. And um, there are many different ways, uh, or rather, there, there... Is, that, is that true? Is that true about politicians as well? Well, the weird thing is that if you look <laughs> at the IQ scores of politicians, they do tend to increase with the seniority of the office. Presidents, <laughs> I, I know, I know it's difficult to 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 believe. Okay. Uh, presidents tend to be smarter than senators. Senators tend to be smarter than congressmen. They tend to be smarter than than uh, local politicians. Um, wait, 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 you're making some assertions here. Is that is that statistically true that there's a, if you do IQs based well, of course, on? I mean, I wouldn't be saying it otherwise. I mean, I've seen those stats myself. Uh, I just didn't okay. include it in the book. There was no reason to. Uh, but. Um, um, one of my assumptions when I moved to DC was that politicians were morons, uh, because I look at how this country is run and uh, how many other countries around the world are run. And I'm thinking, you know, when I moved here 20 years ago, it must be because politicians are dumb. That's not the case. Politicians are very smart. Uh, the, the problem is the set of incentives that they they be, they behave under or the set of incentives that they answer. They want to get reelected. There is no term limits. Um and consequently, they will give the median voter whatever the median voter wants. But they, they, these are not dummies. Uh, the, re the reason why they survive partly is because they're very smart, uh, but they are, they, are, they are basically responding to the incentives that, this, that the system has set up for them. Um, when it comes to global IQ, yes. So, so we don't know for sure the reasons why IQ is increasing globally, but um, it seemed to be that if, if you think about IQ as a ceiling, um, then it matters whether you reach that ceiling. Let's say that your genes give you a potential of an IQ of 120. Um, to get there, you still have to have the proper nutrition and the pro proper intellectual stimulation in order to get there. And the, the, the working assumption is that over the last 60 or 70 years, so many people in the world are better fed and are intellectually stimulated that actually IQ scores are improving. In the West, however, we seem to have seen a plateauing of IQ scores and even small decline. And uh, again, the working hypothesis is that since everybody in the West is already well-fed and intellectually stimulated, they everybody, or rather on average, the society has re reached its ceiling and can move beyond whatever the genetic ceiling has been created. Uh, Bill Walton, does, does, that make, does that make any sense? It does. I'm going to have a follow-up question. Uh, I'm talking with Marion Tupi, humanprogress.org, and uh, 
We're talking about IQs and why they're rising and why they're falling. And we talked about them increasing in, in, in the rest of the world outside in the developing world, so-called, because of nutrition and, and, and better health care. I think one, I have a theory, though, that maybe in the developing world, they're using different tools. I mean, as I think about, you know, the smartphones we have now, um, you, you need to, you need different parts of your brain to, to think about using this. And for most of the world, the smartphones become the banking system, the way people trade with each other, they shop, communicate, things like that. I wonder... And then, but then it seems like the 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 opposite happens here in the more so quote developed countries where the more we use our smartphones, the dumber we get. I I think that people in the West probably use uh, smartphones uh, um, just as well as anybody else. Um, you know, pl plenty yeah. of people in developing countries are watching silly videos. I think I mean I I, I hypothesis would be. That part of the reason why our IQs in the West have leveled off and are even beginning to decline is because smart people don't have that many children and have them later in life. Right. Um, so that, uh, you know, there is a bit of a dysgenic uh, idea going on here. Um, and and frankly, and this is sort of cruel to say, um, you know, um, that in the past there was a higher penalty for stupid behavior. If you were dumb and did dumb things, you are probably going to die uh, due to some sort of a horrible accident, whereas now you get patched up in a hospital with tremendous uh, a tremendous uh, medical equipment at great expense. So um, it, it's more likely that uh, I think the lion's share is probably because smart people are simply not having kids uh, as much as they used to or as much as other parts of the society. So I wanted to get you thoughts about where things are going from here, because things have gotten better and the statistics are con con conclusive, thanks to you and a lot of the work you've done and the and, and, and other people's colleagues. <laughs> I, I wish you take credit, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you should take a lot of credit because you pulled together in one place. Again, I want to plug at humanprogress.org website where it's a treasure trove and I, I highly recommend it. There's also a fairly inexpensive version of the of the 10 trends uh, on Kindle, which I have as well, which is also highly recommended. So if you want to be smart at the next dinner party you attend, I, I would show up with your uh, with your with your Kindle on your iPhone and then you can hold forth about how things are actually getting better. But I worry that they may not be the, the trends may be reversing. And what I mean by that is that we talked about extractive and inclusive, and I fear a lot of the politics today are becoming far more extractive um, than they were, say, 50 years ago. You mentioned getting permission of the king to develop your product. Well, that's not very different from going to the regulators. Right. And how many different job licensing requirements do we have in Absolutely. the United States where, you know, you you can't walk a dog without a license? And, and so the ability of entrepreneurs to get in to do something without asking permission that era, that's that that range of, of freedom is getting smaller and smaller and smaller um with each passing year it worries me so and and, and it should yeah sure i mean nothing in what i say uh should be misconstrued as me saying that things have to work out no i'm i'm involved in a historical analysis and what i'm claiming is that life today is much better than what it used to be 
I'm not predicting that things need to work out. We could still end up with a massive war. We could end up with a pandemic, which is much worse than the one we just had. And of course, we could kill the golden goose, which is global capitalism and American capitalism specifically through our bureaucratic overreach. That's my concern. I mean, we yes. the the new the war the massive family, we can't. I mean, that'll happen. That's going to yeah. be an an event. But we can we can engineer and 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 take good care of our institutions that promote growth. And it seems like the work you've done makes the case very strongly that these are the institutional the societal arrangements that lead to growth and happiness. And absent these, you end up back in the bad old days of extractive. Uh, extractive yes. economy and 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 things get worse not better so we want to preserve those institutions and that's what i'm i, I think a lot more people need to understand just how much good they do as proved by your statistics yes um every man and woman left to their own devices will pursue the best for them and their families and therefore they will improve society by producing more and tending to our needs um and but they have to have the right and the ability to have a go, to have a go without having to ask somebody else for permission to do so. And this is a big problem. In all societies, bureaucracies tend to grow. The deep state is just a different way of saying that there is a bureaucratic class in Washington, D.C., which has grown over the last 100 to 150 years and uh, which is not answerable to the public. Uh, which is growing like a cancer uh, that is ultimately going to suffocate the economy and the society. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe that such a class exists because all you need is every single bureaucrat or you have you need a bureaucrat, every bureaucrat on average to pursue his own interest by increasing his power, increasing his budget, um, and you will end up in exactly the place where we are now, where Washington is filled with what I've been calling for many, many years, the new aristocracy. Um, it took this country, which I like very much and which has been very good to me, it took us 250 years, but we have ended up with a new aristocracy. These are the government workers in Washington, D.C. They do very little. They are not answerable to anyone. They're highly remunerated. And they have power over us that they should not have. And so what is necessary is to really reduce the power of the Washington bureaucracy substantially. We don't need to just work around the edges. Uh, the, the bureaucracy needs to be reduced substantially. Have you written elsewhere or a book or a monograph that takes your findings and Based, I know you're a very careful scientist. You can just tell by talking with you that you want to get this right, and there's statistics that you're you're not just guessing. You can prove it. I try. I, I haven't seen anything. You know, you hear Republicans say, "Well, we want less government, you know, no, no regulation, so on and so forth," and that's just treated as a thing that's, yeah, of course we that we want that, but we, nobody, I don't think, is to in my that I've seen explain why that's the case. And why that, or, or how, what the linkage is between that and and the percentage economic growth? Well, I mean, there's a massive, that... yeah, there's a massive economic literature on so-called public choice theory, 
by uh, James Buchanan and his collaborators. Um, basically, the question they are asking is, um, you know, we we assume that the you know the 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 owner of a company or the CEO of a company behave in their own self-interest. Why do we assume that when people join government, they stop behaving in their self self-interest? Right? I mean, these are the same human beings. Why should they simply change the way in which they operate? So the yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. The example I always think of when I think of it is that way: is you get two kids that go to, you know, um, Illinois University or you know whatever, and they both graduate same year, had similar majors. One of them goes into the agricultural uh, commodity business of some type. The other guy goes for the into the edu the edu education agricultural department in, in Washington. And all of a sudden, the one that ends up in the agricultural department in Washington is a disinterested public servant with no interest. And the one in the private sector is a is a greedy capitalist. And yet they're the same people with the same background and and, and, and cultural, uh, um, uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, cultural uh, characteristics. And that I thought was public choice, but what I'm asking is a little different question. Can we, can we prove that the, the self-interested bureaucrats are putting regulations and, and other sort of uh, restrictions in place and can we show how much that re has reduced growth? I mean, is that are the studies out there for that? Because I'd like to get out and do something yes, about the, that. The, the, there have been uh, there are plenty of studies. I cannot come up with one of them. I, I know there was a man called Burke, B U R G H, who did a study on uh, the size of the state and uh, and economic growth rates. So, if um, if your listeners simply Google. Uh, size of the state and economic growth rate, they, they, will, they will get these results. Also, I highly recommend Economic Freedom of the World Report, um, which they can find on a website called freetheworld.org, I think, freetheworld.org. Is, is that the Heritage Study or is that another uh, That's the Cato slash Fraser Institute Study. Heritage has, a, yeah. has one too, yes. These are uh, compatible uh, but separate projects. One is done by the Heritage Foundation and the other one is done by Cato and Fraser. And uh, what they do show is uh, that, uh, you know, the bigger the size of the government, the less growth there is. Uh, it's called the Economic Freedom of the World Report. So th this is a uh, this is a this is a good academically sound product. It has been worked with uh, by uh, the IMF and the World Bank um, and, and people around the world use it. So, you know, you can you can look at economic freedom of the United States, which I believe picked peaked in about 2006 um and then we've been on a downward slide so then when when people say oh my god you know um dog eat dog american capitalism we we've been really sliding down uh, our economic freedom score for at least 15 years or so so what's your next big what's your next project i mean you've developed something i think is already wonderful but you, you strike me as somebody who's um, ambitious for more. What's the next big thing that you that you want to uh, uh, explain for us? Well, I haven't decided yet, but certainly one project that I would like to get to um, before too long would be um, would be a really a, a very easy to understand booklet for the young about what life under socialism is really like. Because I spent my youth under socialism. Millions. You, you were born in Czechoslovakia. Correct. And. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, millions of people from around socialist countries, be it Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua, are trying to come to the United States to escape socialism like I did. And then you have American kids saying good things about socialism. What gives? So I want to maybe at some point do a project sort of trying to bring it home and explain to American youth why they shouldn't be toying around with fire. I'd make it I'd make it another part of part of your website as well, something that's interactive. I mean, they're very I mean, books are great, but I think there's something to a, to something, maybe a game they could play on a uh, on an iPhone or or other other uh, smartphone, something like that. We see. I'm already in the project. You know, I happen to be an entrepreneur too. I'm already trying to figure out how we can get the biggest market share and something kids would actually pay attention to. Yeah, no matter what you do, you end up in prison in the game. So, no matter what you do, you end up in prison. So, well, that's like under socialism. No matter what you did under socialism, you always ended up in prison. So, oh if you if you want, yeah. If, if you just there's wanna... a there's a there's a board game there's a there's a computer game that's right. how, to avoid, how to avoid prison yeah I love it well I'm glad I finally had a chance to talk with you I mean you're smarter than I imagined and it's, uh, oh, it's and I imagine you are you are I already imagine you were very smart and uh, I think you've done a lot of work to gather all the information we need to know about what works and what doesn't work and uh, again I highly recommend it uh, last word last thought before we uh, we exit. Uh, all I would say is that the um, United States continues to provide a uh, an environment uh, for people who want to make this country better. Um, um, it's been a good institutional setup. It has its imperfections. No country is perfect, but uh, our institutional setup, both economic and political, provided for creation of a tremendously innovative and rich uh, society. And I hope that we can keep it. Um, socialism is on the rise, so please, uh, you know, watch out what your kids are learning, preferably take them out of the public school, put them in, uh, you know, give them education uh, that um, that is a non-Marxist one, uh, guide them toward information like human progress, um, and, and uh, let, let's try to keep this institutional setup and this American freedom going for a, at least a few more decades. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, I want to work with you on that. And uh, hopefully this is the first of many conversations we'll have to help you get the word out about uh, your work and what we ought to be doing. So Marian Tufi, Cato Institute, humanprogress.org. You know, thanks for joining. And thanks, and for, thanks for all of you who've been watching and listening. Thanks for this again. Another shameless plug for humanprogress.org. Uh, go to it and learn. Uh, as always, uh, you can catch us on all the major podcast platforms and on YouTube and Rumble. And we're posting the show to Substack as well. And we're on CPAC now on Monday nights and um, some other platforms we're working on as well. Uh, send us your comments to the BillWaltonShow.com or on Substack. And um, we'll take them into, uh, into, the, into, the, into the laboratory and, and hopefully come up with better shows, even more interesting shows based on your input. So thanks for joining. And... Uh, talk with you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, 
what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.